This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The Christian scriptures imply that some virtues are bestowed directly by God, that God infuses virtue along with the gift of sanctifying grace. This implication stands in sharp contrast to the traditional Aristotelian understanding of virtue, for it implies against the Aristotelian account that we do not cause our own virtues. Even those who accept that some or all the virtues are bestowed by God along with the gift of grace, however, acknowledge that the Christian needs to grow in virtue. And they also acknowledge that even if it is God who causes divinely given virtue to grow, in the typical case, that growth will parallel the efforts of the possessor. Many scholars explain Christian moral growth by hypothesizing that it occurs when the Christian cultivates Aristotelian virtues that fill out his divinely given virtues. In this paper, I propose a different account. I argue that to really understand what it would mean for an infused virtue to grow, we must first consider both what an infused moral virtue is and what an infused moral virtue does. A focus on these questions, I will argue, yields a rather different account of growth in the Christian moral life. Specifically, I will argue that one does not fill out infused virtues by deliberately cultivating acquired virtues. But, lest I be misunderstood, I want to add a caveat. I am not arguing that the acquired virtues don't exist, I'm not arguing that they don't matter, and I'm not arguing that they can't in many circumstances have a dispositive role to play. I'm merely arguing that their cultivation should not be the Christian's goal. And I will have more to say about that at the end of this paper. So in what follows, I'm first going to describe the question at stake. Then I'm going to turn to a relatively basic question, namely how moral virtue in general should be understood. And rather than focus on giving an exhaustive description of moral virtue, I'm going to focus on contextualizing and unpacking a claim made by Aristotle and repeated by Aquinas, namely the claim that moral virtue has to do with ends while prudence has to do with means. I will argue that this claim, properly understood, reveals a frequently overlooked dimension of moral virtue one that can fill out our understanding of not only acquired, but also infused moral virtue in important ways. Finally, I will turn to the question of what this means for understanding the difference between infused and acquired virtues, and for understanding the question of whether the former can be increased by the cultivation of the latter. So the very notion that God bestows versions of all the moral virtues all at once, along with the gift of sanctifying grace, can seem inherently problematic. This is because if God bestows such virtues, whatever account we give of them needs to correspond with experience. And what experience seems to tell us does not neatly, or at least does not obviously, coincide with the view that moral virtues are bestowed all at once by God along with the gift of grace. We expect that a virtuous person will not only do the right thing, but that he will do it easily and without struggle. 
But if we look at many famous cases of conversion, we find change is in the typical case neither swift nor easy. To convert is not or is not usually to suddenly find oneself free of one's past desires or to find it easy to live in a manner befitting a Christian. Some defenders of the of the notion of divinely divinely given virtue respond to problems like this by conceding that the infused virtues in and of themselves are insufficient. They argue that divinely given virtues that are bestowed along with grace still need to be supplemented and filled out by acquired virtues. On this view, someone with infused virtues might be proficient in some areas of life but fall short in others. Um, And for those areas in which they fall short, they will need to cultivate acquired virtues. And this argument can also, of course, be made in the opposite direction, so that someone who is not yet a Christian, but who has already cultivated Aristotelian acquired virtues, will possess a high degree of infused virtue or as soon as conversion occurs. So, for instance, John Inglis has argued that someone who possesses acquired but not infused courage already possesses most of what he needs for martyrdom. He has the requisite strength, and it just needs to be redirected. Although arguments like these are common, I find them unintuitive and problematic. First, I think such views obscure something important that Aquinas clearly holds, namely that the infused virtues, it is the infused virtues themselves that need to grow. Merely to possess them is not to use them, let alone use them often or use them well. In the second place, answers like these gloss over some deep theoretical problems. By assumption, the infused and acquired virtues are distinguished on the basis of their ends. The acquired virtues are supposed to enable us to live in a manner commensurate with the fulfillment of our created human nature— while the infused virtues are supposed to enable us to live in a manner commensurate with our nature as perfected by grace and ordered to supernatural beatitude. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, it is not at all clear to me that the possession of a high degree of acquired virtue will translate so readily to a high degree of the corresponding infused virtue. And I'm going to return to that at the end of this paper. I think one of the things that makes the question surrounding the infused moral virtues so intractable is the lack of any clear conceptual account of what the infused moral virtues actually do. To be sure, it is said that they are habits, and it is said that they order us to supernatural beatitude, and that they give us the strength to resist our vicious dispositions. But claims like these don't do very much to illuminate what they actually do, or what changes in us when we possess them. Neither do such claims do anything to illuminate how the infused moral virtues are properly characterized as virtues, or how they differ from the acquired moral virtues. As a preliminary to addressing the question of what the infused moral virtues do and how they grow, I first want to address the question of what they are. And I'm going to do that by examining and elaborating on a claim about virtue made by Aristotle, and developed by Aquinas. This claim, I want to argue, is very helpful for understanding the difference between infused and acquired virtues. So I'm going to turn to that, and then we'll return to the question of how the infused and acquired virtues differ.
So much is made of the differences between infused and acquired virtues. Of the fact that the infused virtues can exist together with vicious dispositions, for instance, or that one can possess the infused virtues without experiencing the same kind of ease that is experienced in the practice of acquired virtue. But infused moral virtues are still moral virtues. They are habits that inherit in the appetitive powers. As such, it stands to reason that much of what is true of other appetitive habits would hold true of them as well. So I want, as a way of examining the infused virtues, to return to the Thomist Aristotelian account of acquired moral virtue and specifically to the claim made by Aristotle and repeated by Aquinas that moral virtue has to do with ends while prudence has to do with means. Specifically, I want to focus on the question of how the acquired moral virtues make us better moral reasoners, and on Aquinas' response to that question, namely that the acquired moral virtues make us rightly ordered to the ends of the moral virtues. With that account in place, I will argue that it is reasonable to think that something analogous holds true of the infused moral virtues as well. So, while Aquinas consistently insists that although we do not naturally possess the acquired moral virtues, we do naturally possess an aptitude for them. And he distinguishes three respects in which this aptitude is present. First, thanks to the very constitution of our nature, we all possess natural habitual knowledge of the first practical principles, i.e. syndericis, And this knowledge, Aquinas believes, gives us both an inchoate knowledge of and desire for our natural fulfillment. Second, we possess the natural light of reason, which is capable of rendering those first practical principles specific in a concrete instance. Third, we possess appetites which, though not rational themselves, are nonetheless capable of being habituated by reason. We act rightly when we reason from the general knowledge of syndericis to a correct conclusion about what is to be done and act act accordingly. And when we do so repeatedly, we cultivate the acquired moral virtues. Aquinas is clear that even without acquired moral virtues, it is possible to reason correctly from the general knowledge of syndericis to a correct conclusion about what ought to be done in a specific instance. It has to be because otherwise we would never be able to do the actions whose repetition causes the acquired moral virtues in the first place. But Aquinas also clearly thinks that without the acquired moral virtues, it is much more difficult to reason correctly. Without moral virtue, we have a hard time applying the general knowledge of syndericis in a concrete instance. And so in what follows, I want to look closely at a text where Aquinas explains why this is the case. The text occurs in the fourth article of question 58 of the Prima Secundae in the context of a discussion of whether prudence can exist without the moral virtues and vice versa. The fourth article of question 58 asks whether prudence can exist without the moral virtues. Aquinas replies that prudence cannot exist without moral virtue because the moral virtues make us rightly ordered to the ends or principles from which deliberation stems. Prudence, says Aquinas, 
enables us to reason correctly about what ought to be done, quote, not only in general, but also in particular cases, among which are actions. But right reason necessarily proceeds from principles. And reasoning correctly about particular matters, the kind of reasoning prudence engages in, says Aquinas, requires not only the universal principles of syndericis, but also something which Aquinas calls particular principles. With respect to particular matters, says Aquinas, reason needs to proceed not only from universal principles, but also from particular principles. We are ordered to the former kind of principle, Sinderis, right, through our natural habitual knowledge of the first practical principles, syndericis, and some sort of practical knowledge. But Aquinas says that a right order to the universal principles of action is not sufficient for reasoning correctly about particular matters. This is because disordered passions can corrupt our ability to apply universal principles to particular cases. In order to reason rightly about particular cases, then, we need to be rightly related to particular principles or ends. And this right order to these particular principles, says Aquinas, is what the acquired moral virtues bring about. So to sum up where we've come so far, the universal practical principles that we all naturally know, thanks to syndericis, give us a starting point for moral action. But those starting points alone don't provide reason with everything it needs to decide and act rightly in a particular situation. To decide and act rightly in a given situation, we, just, we, we need to be rightly ordered not just to universal principles, but also to what Aquinas calls particular principles. And I'm going to quote Aquinas's explanation of how the moral virtues order us to these particular principles in its entirety because I want to highlight two features of it. Okay, so here's the quote. Just as, man, just as a man is disposed toward being correctly related to the universal principles through a natural understanding or through a habit of knowledge, so too... In order for him to be correctly related to the particular principles of what is to be done, i.e. the ends, he must be perfected by habits in accord with which it becomes in some sense connatural to the man to judge correctly concerning the end. And this is affected by moral virtue. For the virtuous individual judges correctly about the end of virtue since as Ethics 3 says, such as an individual is, so the end appears to him. Okay, so in this quote, Aquinas is making two important assertions. First, Aquinas is making a claim about what the moral virtues do. They make us rightly ordered to what he calls the particular principles or ends of what is to be done. Second, Aquinas is making a claim about how the moral virtues do that. They do it by making it in some sense connatural for us to judge correctly concerning those principles or ends. Okay, so I'm going to take each of those um, points that I highlighted in turn. I'm going to start with the particular principles. Thanks to the universal principles of syndericis, we have a general inchoate knowledge of and desire for 
the good proportionate to our created nature. A knowledge and desire that gives us an order to our natural fulfillment. But to actually pursue that good, we have to apply that general inchoate knowledge. And this, as Aquinas says in the quote above, requires that we be rightly ordered to what he alternately calls particular ends or particular principles. That is, we have to be rightly ordered to the subordinate ends that must be pursued along the way. So what are these? And the quote I just read, Aquinas doesn't elaborate uh, on what the particular ends are. It is clear that whatever they are, they are more specific than do good and avoid evil. It is also clear, on the other hand, that they are principles and therefore general. They are not the conclusions that reason comes to in a particular case, but rather starting points, right, that, that moral reasoning takes its departure from. Moreover, the particular principles seem to include the ends that the individual moral virtues seek to achieve. But if he, Aquinas, even if Aquinas doesn't describe those particular principles in the text I just read, he does mention them in other texts in the context of describing what individual acquired moral virtues do. It seems reasonable that these will be good examples of the principles he has in mind. So I'm going to mention some of them here and then offer a, a hypothesis about what this means for acquired moral virtue. In his disputed question on the cardinal virtues, again in the context of rejecting a comparison between prudence and the craftsman's knowledge, Aquinas refers to the principles or ends of the moral virtues. In this case, Aquinas is arguing that the moral virtues, unlike the various skills a craftsman may or may not have, are connected. He argues for this conclusion by noting that the principles of the moral virtues are connected in a way that the principles of skill are not. As, an as evidence of this, he offers the example of temperance. So I'm quoting Aquinas. For example, those who fail to hold to the principle, which is part of temperateness, that they should not chase after sensual desires, will from time to time, by doing just that, end up acting unjustly and therefore violating justice. Okay, one of the principles or particular ends of temperance then seems to be do not chase after sensual desires. Aquinas mentions similar principles or ends in his discussion of the individual moral virtues. He says, for instance, that the good, the proper end of acquired or civic courage is to, quote, establish man's spirit in human justice to preserve which he endures mortal danger. He says that the virtue of truth seeks to achieve a due order between our words and deeds and what they signify, i.e. the thing itself. Justice seeks to render to each one his due. And many more examples can be found, but these examples, I think, are, are suffice for the, the point I want to make here. In the first place, it is clear that Aquinas thinks that particular principles, while narrower than the universal principles of Sindaresis, are also broader than the specific dictates of prudence. Prudence reasons from the universal and particular principles to a conclusion about what is to be done in a particular instance. Second, while it is by no means clear that Aquinas thinks per particular principles are limited to the ends of the various moral virtues, the ends of the moral virtues certainly seem to be among the particular principles. 
Finally, as is evident in his remarks about both courage and temperance, Aquinas clearly thinks that infused and acquired virtues have different particular principles. This is, I will return to this last point. But for the time being, I want to focus on the second important point mentioned above, namely Aquinas' claim that moral virtue makes it in some sense connatural for us to judge rightly about these particular principles. So I think it's important to think about the ways in which moral virtues can assist reason and the way in which a moral virtue could make right judgment natural. Right? And we have to keep in mind that moral virtues are appetitive habits. Right? This alone indicates that it would be incorrect to attribute any kind of discursive reasoning or discriminating judgment to them. Any claim that the appetites judge would have to be understood in some kind of analogous sense. Nicholas Calm has argued, rightly to my mind, that for an appetite to make an end seem good is just what it is for an appetite to be ordered to that end. What is sometimes called an appetitive judgment, he argues, is simply an instinctual or intuitive movement of the appetite, one which he proposes is experienced in, quote, somewhat like the manner in which our intellects assent to first principles. Perhaps most importantly of all, the appetitive connaturality Aquinas refers to here clearly exists prior to choice and is general rather than particular. The acquired moral virtues incline us toward performing particular kinds of actions, not particular acts. They make certain goals seem attractive or connatural, but they don't make particular actions seem attractive. They cannot because the latter requires the determination of prudence. Appetitive connaturality sets the stage for the activity of prudence, but it does not replace prudence or nullify the need for it. Okay, so we need, we need examples, right? Um, so I'm going to talk about a few examples. The virtue of truthfulness seeks to achieve a due order between signs and what is signified. What would it mean for that end the desire for a due order between signs and what they signify, to be connatural to us. I think that such an end becomes connatural when the inclination for that due order and a repugnance for the lack of it becomes something that we feel, so to speak, in our hearts, as Tobias Hoffman has described it, something that, as Calm puts it, we instinctually feel the goodness of. I think we can all intuitively understand what it means to be somebody who hates lies. To hate the lie is not to hate any particular lie. It can't be, right? Because an impetitive inclination alone does not involve knowledge that any particular assertion is a lie. At the same time, I think we can easily imagine someone who feels a general repugnance for lying or general appetitive desire for truth. A general repugnance for falsehood serves as both a guide and a corrective in our deliberation. Right? It helps keep us focused on the goal, on the importance of signs matching what they signify, and it helps alert us to departures from that goal. And I think the same applies to the other moral virtues as well. To be chaste 
is not merely to be the kind of person who, having recognized that some specific action is or is not consistent with chastity, desires to act accordingly. People who are chaste desire chastity in advance of any particular occasion that demands it. They feel a general repugnance towards unchastity in general and a general desire for the opposite, and so on. Acquired moral virtue makes us feel a general inclination toward the ends of the acquired moral virtues and a repugnance for what opposes them. It does not confer any specific knowledge of what acts moral virtue requires and prohibits. That is the work of prudence. But it does give us a general inclination to the goals that the moral virtues seek. Okay, so so far I've been talking about acquired virtue, right? Um, and how it makes our appetites rightly ordered to what I've been calling the particular principles or particular ends, right, of the moral virtues. And I have noted that Aquinas seems to understand this right order in terms of appetitive connaturality. And that this implies that an important part of what moral virtue does is to make our appetites desire the ends of the moral virtues in general. To have a acquired courage is to have a general enduring inclination to fight for human justice, not just after one recognizes an affront to human justice, but all the time, and so on. As I also noted, without the further specificity of prudence, these appetitive inclinations are general rather than specific. But this does not render them any less important. The connaturality that moral virtue provides helps us pay attention to the morally relevant features of a situation. It steers us away from moral pitfalls, and it keeps the deliberation of prudence on track. But an important question for present purposes, of course, is what all this means for our understanding of infused virtue. And in what follows, I want to argue that it is reasonable to understand the infused moral virtues, too, as providing an appetitive connaturality. But if we adhere to the same kind of account I have been offering, it will become clear that the infused moral virtues provide a necessarily different kind of connaturality. With this account in place, I will then return to the question I posed at the beginning of the paper, namely the question of whether acquired virtues can fill out infused virtues. So we saw above that the particular principles or ends of the moral virtues, of the acquired moral virtues, are further specifications of the universally known principles of syndericis. Through syndericis, we have inchoate knowledge of and desire for the good of reason. But in order for reason to render the general knowledge of syndericis specific in action, we must be able to apply that universal knowledge in practice. And to do that well, we need to be rightly ordered to particular principles. Okay, so what's the, what's the analog for infused virtue? Well, the first crucial point about the infused virtues is this. Aquinas maintains they arise from different universal principles than the acquired virtues do. The acquired virtues arise from our natural habitual knowledge of syndericis because it is syndericis that gives us our first inchoate knowledge of the good commensurate to human nature. But the infused virtues are ordered to a far higher good, supernatural beatitude, a good that far exceeds the principles of our created human nature. And Aquinas repeatedly and consistently insists 
that the divinely given virtue of faith does at the supernatural level what syndericis does at the natural level. Faith gives us the inchoate knowledge of our supernatural good, the supernatural version of the knowledge of our natural good given in syndericis. At the natural level, the knowledge given by syndericis is sufficient to create a desire for it. But at the supernatural level, additional virtues, namely hope and charity, are needed in order for our desire to be united to our supernatural good in the appropriate way. Syndericis gives us our natural universal principles. Faith gives us our supernatural universal principles. And Aquinas is also clear, however, that the theological virtues, while ordered to a more perfect good, are less perfectly possessed. Reason can render the universal principles of syndericis specific in action, but it cannot do the same with the theological virtues. Thus Aquinas maintains that with God's saving grace, we receive not only the theological virtues and the infused moral virtues, but also the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which make us amenable to the Holy Spirit's direction. Okay, so if even the universal principles from which the infused and acquired moral virtues arise differ, it should come as no surprise that their particular principles differ as well. It is one thing to render the universal knowledge of syndericis specific in action, and quite another to render the order given by faith specific in action. Acquired courage, says Aquinas, seeks to establish man's spirit in human justice, while infused courage seeks, quote, to establish man's spirit in divine justice. Acquired temperance makes us desire to eat and drink the amount conducive to bodily health, while infused temperance seeks to castigate the body and bring it into subjection. Aquinas does not explicitly contrast the ends of all the other infused and acquired moral virtues in this way, but the indications that he believes such a contrast exists are clear. And indeed, on Aquinas' account, it should be the case. Particular principles are further specifications of universal principles. And if the universal principles differ, it only stands to reason that the relevant particular principles would differ as well. But now consider all of this in light of the previous section's argument. The argument that an important function of acquired moral virtue is to give us a connatural inclination to the ends of the acquired moral virtues. On the same account, an important function of infused moral virtue should be to give us a connatural inclination to the ends of the infused moral virtues. Possessing infused courage should mean possessing a connatural inclination in our appetites to stand firm in the good of divine justice, just as possessing acquired courage means possessing a connatural appetitive inclination to stand firm for human justice. Understanding infused moral virtue as including a connatural appetitive inclination of this kind is helpful in illuminating just what the infused moral virtues do and why they are necessary. So what would it mean to possess a connatural appetitive inclination to the ends of the infused virtues? In thinking through this question, it is helpful to have examples. The example of infused courage seems particularly promising 
because Aquinas not only describes the end that infused courage is ordered to, but also devotes a considerable amount of attention to martyrdom, which is for Aquinas the paradigmatic act of infused courage. The courage that is a gift of grace, says Aquinas, strengthens the human mind in the good of God's justice, which is won through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, says Aquinas, is, quote, the final good in which man is made resolute, while divinely given courage is, quote, related to us as a disposition which brings about the act itself. To possess infused courage seems essentially to possess the habitual general inclination to be steadfast in one's faith in the face of any and all obstacles that arise. This is why Aquinas says that martyrdom is the highest act of infused courage, and it is also why Aquinas says that anyone who dies while living out their Christian faith is a martyr. To exhibit infused courage is to be steadfast in one's faith, not just in proclaiming the truths of the faith, but also in living one's faith. If the parallel I have been suggesting is accurate, then it should follow that infused courage causes a natural appetitive inclination to, for lack of a better word, defend one's faith. On the account I am proposing, the person with infused courage will want, at an instinctive level, to stand firm in and give witness to his faith, no matter what the obstacles, and he will feel in his heart the good of being steadfast in his faith. The inclination will be general, which means it will be felt prior to any particular act of infused courage and prior to any particular activity of infused prudence. Understanding the difference between infused and acquired courage in this way can illuminate the flaw in the claim that the person of acquired courage already possesses, quote, most of what he needs, that he has the requisite strength and only needs a bit of redirecting. Moral virtues do not confer a sort of portable mental firmness that can be applied at will to any end whatsoever. Moral virtues make us feel in our hearts that a given particular end is a good end to have, and in so doing they help keep the deliberations of prudence, whether infused or acquired, on track. A person of acquired courage can't simply take his strength and apply it to a new goal, the strength his acquired courage confers is tied up in the goals of acquired courage. Since Aquinas is clear that not everyone receives the same degree of infused virtue and that infused virtue can increase, it is also clear that not everyone who receives infused virtue will experience the same instinctual inclination to defend or be steadfast in his faith. Not everyone who possesses infused courage will feel in his heart that defending the faith is good with the same intensity. The infused virtues increase, says Aquinas, when they become more deeply rooted in us. It is reasonable to assume that as the infused virtues become more deeply rooted, we will experience a greater appetitive connaturality for the ends of the infused moral virtues. And in a moment, I'm going to say a bit about whether and how one might pave the way for that increase. But in the t for the time being, I want to return to the view I mentioned at the beginning of the paper, right? namely the idea that um, the infused moral virtues are filled out and increased by the cultivation of acquired virtues. When we think of infused and acquired virtue in general, and infused and acquired courage in particular, 
In terms of the different connatural appetitive inclinations that correspond to them, I think it becomes clear that the possession of a high degree of one implies nothing at all about the degree to which one possesses the other. Someone in whom the theological and infused moral virtues are weak will not only have weak faith, he will also have less deeply rooted instinctual appetitive inclinations to be defend and be steadfast in it. But it is entirely plausible to think that someone with a great deal of acquired courage, someone in whom the instinctual appetitive inclination to stand up for the good of human justice is very strong, might also have weak faith. There is no obvious contradiction in possessing a strong appetitive inclination to, say, risk one's life to defend one's country, and also possessing only the weakest of appetitive inclinations to be steadfast in one's faith. Far to the contrary, I think such examples are quite common. So while one certainly might agree with Aquinas's claim that the cultivation of acquired courage disposes one to receive the gift of infused courage, there's no reason to think that acquired courage somehow directly increases or fills out infused courage. It seems to me, indeed, that there is one and only one way for a connatural appetitive inclination to the ends of the infused virtues to increase, and that is through the direct action of the one who bestowed the inclination in the first place. Okay, now at the beginning of this paper, I kind of pose the problem about infused virtue and how it has to correspond with experience. And the account I've been offering might seem to make the problem larger rather than smaller, because on my account, it is not only those mired in sin who will struggle to walk as befits the light of faith, but also those who have already made significant progress in cultivating the acquired moral virtues. And in this final section, I want to propose an account of what growth and infused virtue might look like and of what will ultimately make such growth possible. In what follows, I want to first offer an image of what the ideal of the Christian life is, and with that image in place, I will then propose a way of understanding what occurs when Christians fall short, and of what must happen in order for our actions to more closely approximate the goal. So in a paper that he gave at one of these very Thomistic Circle conferences, probably standing at this very podium, um, Fred Ferdoso used a passage from a book by St. Jose Maria Escriva, to provide an image of what it might mean to live one's Christian vocation to the full. Okay, so this is a quote from Escriva's book. You are writing to me in the kitchen, by the stove. It is early afternoon. It is cold. By your side, your younger sister, the last one to discover the divine folly of living her Christian vocation to the full, is peeling potatoes. To all appearances, you think, her work is the same as before, and yet what a difference there is. It is true, before she only peeled potatoes, now she is sanctifying herself, peeling potatoes. And the, the younger, uh, and, and Ferdoso takes this to be a description of somebody exercising infused virtue. The younger sister in Jose Maria Escriva's image is not a new convert. Her discovery is not Christianity as such. 
Rather, she has discovered, quote, the divine folly of living her Christian vocation to the full. To truly live one's Christian vocation to the full is to do all that we do, even something so mundane as potato peeling for the love of God. Jose Maria Escriva's image implies that when one lives one's Christian vocation to the full, even the way one peels potatoes is transformed. What is implicit in Escriva's image and what Ferdoso makes explicit, however, is this. The mere fact that one has received the gifts of grace is no guarantee that one will act accordingly. Living one's Christian vocation to the full, says Ferdoso, I'm quoting Ferdoso now, does not happen either automatically or quickly. One can have the infused moral virtues and never act from them. Furthermore, a conversion, i.e. a turning to God, must be accompanied by constant and intense prayer, by the sacraments, etc., so that one gradually comes to live in the presence of God. To receive the gifts of grace is only to receive the capacity to make the first hesitating steps in the Christian life. And I want to, there are two points that are implicit in Ferdoso's remarks. First, the mere fact that we have the capacity to act for the sake of an end is no guarantee that our every act will be appropriately ordered to that end. If we are living our Christian vocation to the full, then even peeling potatoes and cleaning latrines will be acts of sanctification. But they frequently are not because most of us fail to live our Christian vocation to the full. And the second, and to my mind, crucial point is this. When we do not, in peeling potatoes and cleaning latrines, engage in acts of sanctification, we are falling short of the goal of the Christian moral life. We should not think it enough if we can assure ourselves that we are peeling potatoes for some genuinely good natural end. So I think if we want to offer an account of growth in the Christian life, we first need to make the falling short explicit. Exactly how do I fall short of the goal even when my potato peeling is merely ordered to some genuine natural good? After all, surely my potato peeling is not sinful. It doesn't involve my turning my back on God. I think if we can understand the falling short, we will also be in a position to understand the way forward. And in what follows, I will argue that our earlier reflection on the transformative role of faith can provide insight into both why we fall short and to what must change if moral growth is to occur. I noted above, and I'm almost done, so... I noted above that Aquinas believes the gifts of grace do not just order us to a more exalted end, but in fact give us new first principles. Just as Sindaresis gives us our first inchoate knowledge of our natural fulfillment, so does the infused virtue of faith give us our first incomplete knowledge of supernatural fulfillment and hope and love the desire for it. But the picture I offered there was incomplete in at least this much. Even if faith and the other theological virtues give us new first principles, that is no guarantee that we immediately apply them correctly. Right? I mean, given Aquinas' account of human nature, Sindaresis cannot but operate as a first principle in us, something that we necessarily presuppose in all of our moral reasoning. 
even if we all presuppose them, most of us apply them in action imperfectly. But if we possess the acquired moral virtues, then when we use our virtues, we apply the general knowledge of syndericists correctly in our reasoning. But it is possible to have the acquired moral virtues and not use them, especially when something else gets in the way. And I think something similar needs to be said about the first principles of infused virtue and the infused moral virtues ordered to them. It is one thing to possess the infused virtue of faith. It is quite another for faith to so pervade our moral reasoning that it constantly informs it, to so pervade it that all of our actions are performed in the light of that faith. By his own account, the English sailor and slave trader John Newton became a believer in a relatively short space of time. Bored at sea, he picked up Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ and as quickly put it down again, afraid it was all true. But that night, his ship was racked by a terrible and near-fatal storm. As a result of his experience that night, Newton came to believe. His conversion was not half-hearted either. After that night, he began to study the Bible in earnest. But he only gradually gave up his old ways. He did not even leave the slave trade for some time. Why? I think a very reasonable explanation is that Newton's faith initially occupied only a very small corner of his life. Even while he nurtured his newfound faith in some respects, in the rest of his life, the same habits and same patterns of thought persisted. He believed, but his belief did not consistently, did not always inform his moral deliberation. Only as his faith gradually began to pervade the rest of his life was he able to let go of his old habits and old ways of acting. What is evident in the early days of Newton's conversion is a disconnect between what he genuinely accepts as his goal, participation in the divine life, and the particular ends that he in fact pursued. Even as he accepted a new life, he continued to more or less live as he had before. One way of explaining this disconnect is to say that although Newton believed, it remained the case that he most often did not reason as if he believed. He continued to operate according to the same presuppositions and patterns, the same particular principles that had become ingrained in him. He had a new end, but he continued to act as if his end were unchanged. And I think the same can be said about peeling potatoes. When we, having been elevated to participation in the divine life, continue to seek only to perform acts proportionate to our natural flourishing, when we continue to deliberately pursue the particular ends of the acquired virtues, then we act as if our end was other and lesser than participation in the divine life. Since natural goods are genuine goods, we can pursue them without turning our back on the supernatural life, but in pursuing them we fall short nonetheless. So what has to happen if we are to live our Christian vocation to the full? I think what the proceeding shows is this. We cannot live our Christian vocation to the full unless and until the new first principles given by faith pervade even our deliberation about the means. So long as we believe but continue to rely solely on our own natural reason, whether perfected by acquired virtue or not, to guide our acts, then I think we will fall short of the goal of the Christian life. What must we do if we are to discover the divine folly of living our Christian vocation to the full? 
From the proceeding, it seems clear that we will live our Christian vocation to the full to the extent to which it becomes connatural to us to use the particular principles of the infused moral virtues rather than the particular principles of the acquired in our reasoning. Whether and how this occurs, of course, is up to God. And I should add that I think that if one genuinely strives to perform acts ordered to supernatural beatitude, prays, seeks out divine help, and still only manages to perform an act ordered to natural flourishing, then I think even that much will be dispositive, because the goal was there. Scholars frequently emphasize the continuity between the cultivation of the acquired moral virtues on the one hand and the infused moral virtues on the other. And they are right to do so. There are indeed a great many commonalities between the two types of virtue. As I have attempted to illustrate, however, those commonalities are structural rather than internal. The cultivation of the one will look very like the cultivation of the other, but we do not cultivate the one by cultivating the other. To begin to cultivate the infused virtues is to take first hesitating steps in the life of grace. The cultivation of the acquired virtues can dispose us to undertake that journey, but no amount of acquired virtue can make those first steps less faltering. Thank you, Dr. Knoebel. So I had a question about kind of just the last bit of your talk. I think I definitely agree that what you're saying about the um, how they can look very similar, the acquired virtues and the infused virtues, but it's, an, it's a structural thing, not an interior thing. But I'm not sure if that would lead to the conclusion of the one doesn't aid the other, acquiring the one doesn't aid the other, I guess, because I'm wondering, I mean, does St. Thomas, would you, would you, in your estimation, would St. Thomas say that um, just as the passions can cloud synderesis or even the particular principles of natural moral reasoning, would it also not cloud the, the reasoning that stems from faith-aided synderesis, so to speak, or faith-aided particular principles of the moral of the Christian moral life, and if that's the case, wouldn't it be good, I guess, and helpful to curb your passions even in a natural way, because then at least they're not interfering with the reasoning of faith-aided synderesis, if you will. So, um, so thank you. Um, look, I, I agree with what you've said in this much, right? I think that somebody. Um, whose uh, practice can conscientiously pursued as natural fulfillment is going to have a lot fewer obstacles, right, than um, in the to beginning to participate in the life of grace than like a mobster or something like that, right? Totally agree, right? But my point is about the goal. And, and as, as I read Aquinas, right, and as I re understand the theory of infused moral virtue, take any action, X, peeling potatoes, going to the store, <laughs> being nice to your mother, right? You could do that, right? Um, at, you, could, you could, to do that in the right way could be an act of acquired moral virtue, insofar as it's ordered to your natural fulfillment, or it could be an act of infused moral virtue, right? Um, and 
if it's one or the other, not everybody thinks it is necessarily one or the other, but I kind of take that end thing to be distinctive, right? I, I have one natural, I have one ultimate end or a different. And, I'm, and so my point is, if it could be, right, if you're a Christian and any given act you do could be an act of infused virtue, then I think it doesn't make any sense to be like, yeah, I'm going to go cultivate the acquired for a while, right? So that gets easier, right? <laughs> now, I, I do think, right, that very, we, we don't know, I don't know, none of us ever know, right? This is, when you, when you look at the beautiful histories of, of martyrs, right? You go read Peter Ackroyd's wonderful bi- biography of Thomas More or, or Joan of Arc, right? You, you find these um, people, people, martyrs themselves are not confident, right, that they're performing acts of infused virtue. We don't know. We can pray, right? And we, we ask for God's guidance and we hope that our acts are rightly ordered. And I, now, I think it very often probably is the case that people who are trying to live their Christian vocations to the full end up going by their own reason, right? And Father Sherwin was talking yesterday about some of the, the poor decisions that saints have made, and I think that's probably what happened, right? They were trying, but they ended up relying on their, you know, they, they didn't quite get there. Do I think that's dispositive towards growth? And the, Yeah, I do, right? Because you're, but what I, what I don't think it makes sense to do is be like, oh, yeah, supernatural beatitude, that's, yeah, that's really important. So I'm going to go over here and cultivate acquired virtue for a while. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Thank you, Doctor. I'm wondering, because I really, you know, going back to Escriva's description of the child, and we can even think of colloquially, we'll speak of like the secret ingredient was love, like was made. (laughs) I I totally don't buy cookies taste the same regardless. But (laughs) I I, I almost feel like I need to send you some of my raisin cookies now. Um, But I'm wondering if it's. Because I'm 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 with you on the acquired like why would you go do that to help you with supernatural and infused, but can cultivating the infused by changing the proper end as it were of the acquired, which I know is kind of bending Aquinas, could we be acquiring acquired virtues by having a new end? Okay, so so that that's a big question and and kind of the. The, um, and people have lots of different things to say about that. And I'm kind of a stickler about the end thing. Not everybody is, right? So I think that um, <laughs> um, an act of infused virtue is an act ordered to supernatural beatitude. Like I don't, I, I don't tend to be of the school of thought. Other people who I respect are, right? That, that it also like cultivates and acquired. And that's because of the kind of proximate ends thing that I was talking about, okay? Now, I want to I want to add this though, like Mother Teresa gets up at four a.m. every morning to pray. Um, if Mother Teresa loses her faith, she's still going to wake up at four a.m. Right? Um, a a um, courageous pagan, right, is really good at, at fighting battles. Um, if he converts, he's still going to be really good at fighting battles. Right? I don't tend to think of those things right? Those things that I agree we create. I think it's a miscategorization to call those acquired virtues, right? So I agree that skills and knowledge and I, there's this whole underlying dispositional level, right? And we're creating stuff. But if I'm going to call something an acquired virtue, right, then I'm going to talk as, 
as, as the thing that makes me ordered to my natural fulfillment, if I'm going to call it an infused root, right? And that's why I was, I was talking about kind of, I think it is that a connatural appetitive inclination towards the end. I don't think it's a skill or an ability or, you know, supposedly, um, uh, you know, because um, in uh, feudal Russia, um, they were tortured so frequently, apparently Russian peasants were really good at withstanding torture. They were just really, really tough. Right. Um, and I know it's true. I mean, there's a wonderful biography of um, Catherine the Great, which she, the kind of details some of the horrible things she put people through. But um, and, and I but I'm not willing to call that like I think if you're calling that acquired courage. Right. Or, or the, the Viking raider or whatever. Right. I, I think that has to be by analogy. Right. There's a, because I think that. If you're really going to have acquired courage, then it's this inclination to this this deep instinctual desire to stand up for the goods of human justice. And it's tied to the, the human justice thing. So I don't know if I'm – so I agree that there would be all this other stuff and there there is other stuff that gets created by your actions because we're human and we're embodied and all. But I'm not willing to call them those things that get created um, – not, not willing to kind of appropriate the language of acquired virtue for them, right? Unless you could convince me that what's getting created is this <laughs> appetitive inclination towards some, right, um, particular uh, end of an acquired moral virtue. Thanks for a characteristically thoughtful and, and probing paper. So I, I, I think, I trust you agree that Aquinas holds that given acts can have multiple species that are hierarchically related to one another, right? So the person who um, commits adultery in order to embezzle, that's not a very good, not a very good act. And, the, and it's also the case that virtues can use one another. So the virtue of religion as general commands almsgiving and almsgiving undertakes its elicited act, and religion both commands it and then directs it to the good of, of, of loving and worshiping God. And so I guess I'm wondering how you think about something like this. So, so last night, a group of us gathered around, and, and we shared wine and cheese and drink and, and had a festive and good time. It's hard for me to see that as having been an act of infused temperance, even as I think all of us, I hope all of us were seeking in all that we did in our conversation to, to love God with charity. So why not think that in those moments, we are distantly and remotely ordered fully to God and acting out of, out of love for God but at the same time taking as approximate and penultimate end the natural good of enjoying the food and drink in that particular way. Our will's not resting in it fully by any means, but at least recognizing the, the proximate natural good that, that it is as a gift from, from God. Yeah, um, thank you. And I mean, you know, I know this is your view and you know I respect your work and We've had this conversation before, I think. Um, but um, 
but they haven't. They, you're right. You're right. They they haven't. Um, and I mean, this is the view of your dissertation director too, right? John Bolin, and isn't he your direct? Wasn't he your director? Oh well, okay, your friend. Yeah, um, you know, and he has a paper um, about how um, virtues are elevated and healed. Um, yeah, I I don't actually. I mean, I think that. Here's the thing. Um, I think you have to be careful um, when, I mean, it sounds good, right, to say that that one virtue can kind of be subordinated to the other. But to fit that into the, and the, the mechanism or the, the structure of Aquinas' account of inf infused and acquired virtue, you have to be able to accommodate the fact that there aren't, um, that, that there are infused versions of every acquired virtue, right? So um, it's, it's not, I, I think that in um, the discuss, you know, the, the nice discussion with the wine and cheese, very probably some of us were performing acts of acquired temperance and some of us maybe were performing acts of infused temperance. I think that the difference in end, and this is where you and I disagree, pervades even the proximate ends we have. And that's why I was focusing on the different particular principles. Um, because I actually don't think it's the case that I can just um, acquired temperance performed for the, the kind of that I can kind of take that and order it to infuse temperance because I think and this is where I think you know you're on one side and Bill Madison and I are on the other side I think that a difference in end at at this level now I'm not going to say that with you know when when you have like household prudence and individual prudence and they're both acquired and you know then I agree that the ordering can go from one to the other but where there is a difference in ultimate end, I think that that difference in ultimate end trickles down even to the proximate ends. And I think that that is um, where you and I disagree. So just following on this same um, path here, the, I'm just comparing the slaver example to the potato peeler example. Now, it's pretty um, they're very different from one another because the slaver has to stop slaving. But the potato peeler can, I sound like a Taylor Swift song, but the potato peeler <laughs> can keep uh, peeling. I'm impressed you know Taylor Swift songs, Michael. <laughs> I have daughters. So, uh, so, um, so the, but the potato peeler can keep peeling potatoes. Now, here's the thing. If it turns out in every case, as long as you're not sinning, you just go on as before, except now you're doing it for God, it becomes harder to accept the fact that the, the old, the, the new end actually is pervading everything. Mm -hmm. And sometimes mm -hmm. people say, yes, I used to live in a, this fantastic bourgeois lifestyle. And now I live a fantastic bourgeois lifestyle mm -hmm. for God. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. wonder what that's supposed to mean. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it would help, I think, to not just stop with the potato example, but to try to yeah. you know put more flesh on, on the bones of it by showing how at least sometimes it actually results in the action. Otherwise, the pervading is, if you'll forgive me, 
a little too spiritual sounding. No, I, to- I totally agree. And I totally agree that we're needed with examples. And I think that's what this gentleman over here, when he's talking about cookies made with love or whatever, right? But I do think, I, I did, right? Because I, I think a cookie is a matter of a recipe and proportions and weights, right? But I, I don't necessarily think that the act of making cookies for somebody is going to be identical. Right. And I think I mean, it is hard to talk about this. Right. Because I think that very often the if you stick on the physical details of what is done, it's going to be hard to distinguish the two. But I I bet everybody in here has encountered somebody even standing in line in the grocery store who has treated them in a way that you recognized as kind of a loving Christian charity. I mean, I, I do think that there are, and it, it's hard, right? It, it's hard to describe it without sounding fluffy, right? Um, but I do think that there is a difference. I think that there is um, a real difference. And um, you're right, you wouldn't, and so usually I get accused of the reverse of what you're accusing me of, is like magnifying, like they're so different, right? Because um, very, I mean, sometimes, I think sometimes the physical details will be identical, but Aquinas is clear that very often even the physical details will differ, right? Sometimes, you know, infused virtue is going to require that you be a martyr, and, and that would be extreme by the standards of, of um, acquired virtue and, and, and vice versa. But I, I agree. I think that that's the next direction you would need to go is to try and specify how even those pr- quote-unquote proximate um, details differ. The first thing you have to do is just stop committing sins. But then, but then, but I mean, I think, for, um, I mean, this is sort of, unf- yeah, this is unfair to Aristotle. Anyway, so, w- but it's not enough, right? You right. also have to start trying right. to do things that are on a higher plane. And part of the difficulty is articulating what it means for those things to be better and higher, even right. though the lower are, they're not bad. Right. So in what, what's the way in which you're baking cookies now? in a better way that's not yeah. simply thinking, oh, Jesus, I'm baking these cookies for you. I mean, <laughs> right. of course, no, I I'm, I'm not against I totally, that. But I, like, totally, I, yeah. I totally agree. And I think actually with going back to the slavery example, right, with Newton, like I actually think that what makes those cases kind of interesting is that they, they kind of, the way they move away from vice is by deepening their faith life, right? I mean, I I don't I think that for for that kind of person, the natural reasons are not going to be convincing, and they kind of have to act for this. They they kind of have to see God and their fellow man to stop being a slaver because they don't have the you know they don't have the they're not at the natural step. So no, it's in, to, yeah, totally agree. Um, yes, thank you so much for the talk. Um, so my question is along these same lines. Um, I think I was most um, unsure about this defining of moral virtues as a general inclination or appetitive connaturality. Um, and, and I think as, as apart from something that is acted, as apart from these things which moved into the category of, of skill, um, and, and, and the description of a virtue as um, something you can possess but not use, um, I don't quite understand in that way how you can possess an, 
possess this virtue, have an inclination towards something, um, and yet, you know, not be used. I, th I think it's it's the sense of, you know, can can the courageous, you know, pagan warrior who seems to act courageously be less virtuous than someone who like possesses the virtue of courage but like does not act like that that kind of distinction um i'm trying to understand but i i, I think the um like the the main question there is like like where exactly is this inclination located like how does this um appetitive inclination does it does it influence our our desires which then influence our action you know like is it itself a kind of desire like i I'm trying to, I think, put, put body. Okay, so thank you. Um, yeah, um, and maybe it'll help if I kind of locate this in some contemporary conversation about virtue, right? So, um, you know, there's um, a, a virtue, you know, virtues are dispositions and they're dispositions of the powers of the power in which they inhere, right? And so a moral virtue has to be dis a disposition of an appetitive power, right, of concupiscible, irascible power. Um, and there's a debate among Thomists about exactly what that means, right? Because um, my concupiscible faculty, right, does not deliberate. Reason deliberates, right? And so, well, what are the options? Well, maybe having temperance means I always want to eat oatmeal for breakfast. Well, that can't be right because it's not always appropriate to eat oatmeal for breakfast, right? So um, temperance can't mean desiring specific actions or to always do specific things. It has to be plastic, right? At the same time, we can't attribute deliberation to something, to a habit that resides in an appetitive faculty. So what is it, right? And so there's this discussion in the liter literature, and some people have proposed that um, really – um, having moral virtue mean, just means uh, that your passions are kind of static, right, until reason tells it what to want, and then they want it, right? Um, that doesn't sound right either, because that sounds kind of Kantian, right? And, um, or not Kantian, but it, it certainly doesn't sound Thomistic, right? Because uh, you want a moral virtue to actually be a desire, right? And so what um, Nicholas Kahn has proposed, I think very insightfully, um, is that the, the, to have a moral virtue is to have your appetitive, the relevant appetitive power ordered in such a way that it desires the right things in general, right? So you can imagine somebody who, and I think you meet these people all the time, right? Somebody who very much wants to stand up for what is right, right? Now, prudence would have to help them figure out what is right, right? But my point was wanting to stand up for what is right or wanting to be faithful to your spouse. It, they create kind of bumpers for your moral reasoning, right? Because when you start going off, right, when the reasoning starts going astray, that, that general wanting is going to keep your deliberation on track. And so, and comms, I'm getting this from Nicholas Calm, um, but uh, so it's not, it's not my idea. It's just an idea that I, that I think is right. Um, and I, Tobias Hoffman says this as well, right? That um, to ha the moral virtues that are the, uh, the habits in our appetites 
help keep the deliberation of prudence from going astray. So they keep it back on track and help me focus on the right things. If I really want to be faithful to my spouse, alarms are going to start going off, right? When I'm spending too much time with someone I shouldn't or when, or when somebody makes a joke that I know is not is off color, right? It's going to, those rightly ordered appetites are going to help me think, but they're general inclinations. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the view that I was, that I like and, and was referring to and would defend. Um, I guess the, the other thing I would say, I mean, you're right. I mean, I think, um, I mean, even Aristotle says that you don't act according to the moral virtues when you're sleeping, right? <laughs> um, it depends on how much you want to press um, you know, if somebody were fully and completely virtuous, maybe they could never act in a non-virtuous way. But we've all experienced that it's harder to be nice when you're stressed or sleepy or hungry, right? Hangry, right? Um, so there, there, you, can have, um, you can have an abiding disposition, but obstacles can get in the way, right? You can have dispositions um, and not use them. Uh, to often because you're focused on other things. And I, um, so I think, and I think that's true even of acquired moral virtue, right? Even kind people are sometimes unkind, right? Um, um, truthful people are very rarely <laughs> untruthful, right? But now when it comes to um, infused virtue, I think that the, the, that ups the ante a little bit, right? Because I think it is, I think it is a challenge for us to see things in the light of, of faith, right? Even though we are in a state, you know, we've been to confession, we're practicing the, ver the sacraments, right? We're, it's still hard to have, uh, to do everything we do in the light of faith. I think other things get in the way. Well, let us give our thanks to Professor Knobel for her presentation. <laughs>